We're glad you guys are here and for everybody attending online tonight. Uh, we're grateful that you clicked on uh, whatever link you decided to get on. And if you stumbled upon us by accident online, don't go anywhere. Just stick around and uh, hopefully uh, you enjoy the next few moments that you have. Uh, we are just delighted that you guys are here. Uh, one of the things that I do want to mention again to our online crew um, if you get a chance, just grab a few things to be able to take communion. It can be some bread, crackers, chips, whatever, and some kind of liquid that you can drink. Um, and we'll just remember the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made for us on the cross a little bit later tonight. You know, I, it was, uh, I don't know, Andrew, it must have been a year and a half ago that uh, it was over that, almost two years ago that Andrew and I sat down, and we were like, man, where should we go as far as a sermon series goes? <clears throat> and we were both kind of just thinking about it and talking through it, and I had kind of just felt this nudging, what if we just studied the life of Jesus? And he said, that sounds like a really good idea. Let's just study the life of Jesus. Let's study the Gospels of Jesus Christ. And I thought, well, we'll call it Life of Christ, and we'll do it in a chronological order. And, and uh, we were going to start it in June. And I thought, man, this would be really cool. It would be the longest series that I've ever done, and we'd probably wrap it up around Easter. And uh, so we're a year and a half now, and uh, we might wrap it up by this Easter. So we're just an Easter uh, beyond. But we are just studying through the life of Jesus, the things that he taught, the things that he said, uh, and uh, just seeing what we can take from that, how we can not only learn from it, but how we can apply it to our lives, and so that we will live it out when we leave here. And we just had this idea uh, with this church of having a church that really was encouraging people to go out and reach people for Jesus. We have a lot of churches that do a really good job of reaching saved people. And uh, so I had it on my heart, let's go out and reach unsaved people, the people that if you went out if you don't go after them today and they die tomorrow, they have an eternity uh, without him. And so we had this idea for a mission statement, helping people far from God coming, come to life in Christ. And it's not always what we do inside this room, but it is what you do when you leave this place. See, we come together, we worship God, we get connected in community, we grow in God's word. Uh, we get to serve the community that we live in. We get to provide for one another, which is an amazing, awesome thing. But the mission, that is when you leave here and you go to your homes, your workplaces, your schools, neighborhoods, rec centers, coffee shops, breweries, libraries, restaurants, the shopping centers that you go to, wherever it is that you are going to, you're looking for opportunities to be able to share a saving grace relationship with Jesus Christ. And that is always the goal. That is always the mission, to point people to Jesus. And I believe if we've saved one person from eternity separated from God, we've done a really good thing. It's a really good thing. Because whoever finds Christ, and I love this, it's a saying that a lot of church plants use, but whoever finds Christ finds life. But we also need to be understanding of the opposite of that being true, that anyone who does not find Christ does not find eternal life. And so that should be something that weighs on us a little bit. And I believe it's why Jesus did some of the things he did. 
So when we're reading through the Gospels, we're reading some of the things that Jesus did, I think it becomes clear why he did some of the things he did. Because Jesus was teaching uh, his disciples, and he would pour into them so that one day he was going to send them out. And he does this several times where he will teach them, and they will learn, and then he will say, now go do it. All right? Now, I got to imagine that that would be a little bit of a, oh, wow. (laughs) You ever been that spot where you're paying attention, but then it was like, now you need to go do it? And I'm like, oh, wait, hold on. (laughs) Hold on a second. Could you repeat the last 10 minutes of everything you just said? Because I want to make sure that when I do go out, I do that correctly. And I imagine that the disciples every once in a while are like, okay, wait a minute. You're sending us out there? Not sure if I took great notes, but okay, here we go. But they came together, he pours into them and sends them out. But when Jesus was teaching, oftentimes, a lot of the things that he was saying was well-received by some and not well-received by others. Let me explain that to you. It was really well-received by people uh, who had been told their whole life that it didn't belong to them which had to be refreshing for them. There are so many people that were told, hey, this isn't for you. You're a sinner. You're a tax collector. Hey, you have physical disabilities. This isn't for you. How awful that must have been for them, but how amazing it must have been for them to hear Jesus say something like, no, this includes you. This is for everybody. And then there were a lot of people who didn't like it. They didn't like what he was saying, and I, we always, in churches, we call them space makers. When you preach a sermon and half the people aren't going to come back next week because you really, you know, just brought out the truth of Christ, and a lot of people don't like the truth. The truth is not always popular. It's not always something that people want to adhere to. And so, uh, basically, Jesus would say these things, and instead of it being a matter of self-righteousness, It's going to be a matter of the heart and a relationship and a pursuit of God. And so there's a lot of people that are going to hate what they hear, and they're never going to want to come back to hear another word that he has to say. And actually, Jesus is okay with that. I think that's one of the things in ministry that you're like, you come to discover, and you're like, wow, Jesus was okay with it separating the people who were taking it seriously, and those were not. He was intentionally separating people, and he would rather have people that were going to be faithful to him instead of people that were just going to be fascinated by him. But in Luke chapter 15, so if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 15. In Luke chapter 15, uh, the Pharisees are again questioning Jesus. Now, if you're not familiar with the Bible or Scripture or anything, uh, the Pharisees... Uh, they were one of two Jewish groups that ruled over the people of Israel during the first century. And this was the time of Jesus. And so the Pharisees, uh, they loved the self-righteousness of themselves. They believed and accepted God's word in the Old Testament, mostly in the Torah. The Torah is the first five books of the Bible. Do you guys know them? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, in Deuteronomy, the books of law that Moses would write. And so uh, Jewish people still really adhere to those first five books. It was very important. And the, the Pharisees, man, they just really honed in on this. But here's the problem. Uh, the Pharisees, here's what they did. Uh, 
they added to the laws that were given. So about 613 laws were given uh, to the people of Israel, uh, mostly in Exodus and Leviticus. You can read through there. But God brings these laws down, and these are the ones that they're going to abide by. The problem is the Pharisees, what they do is they added to them these oral traditions or traditions of the elders is what it's referred to. Now, kids, it's hard enough to remember certain rules that mom and dad give us, right? Would you like a whole bunch more added to it? I don't even like adding to it, but that's kind of what happened. Um, Maybe it's like this. the other night, I actually took my daughters out on a, a father-daughter date, and uh, I stunk at it. I, I did it wrong. I ordered tickets online to a movie, and, uh, and then I was going to take them to dinner. But as we were driving there, I realized the tickets I got were for Friday, and uh, we were on our date on Thursday. And I'm like, man, I'm terrible at this whole date thing. But I'm like, hey, I know how to make up for this, and it's Texas Roadhouse. So we can make up for this and just eat a bunch of rolls with unhealthy butter, and it's going to be amazing. But as we were sitting there, I was like, hey, what if we did this? Because Sarah, she was um, hosting a thing that night, I thought, and I didn't want to disrupt that. So my plan was we are going to be out for about three hours, and now it's going down to about an hour and a half. So I thought, what if we stop by Walmart on the way home, and we get Uno? And the girls were like, Uno? I was like, Uno. And they said, we don't know, no, what you're talking about. And so I'm like, it's, it's okay, it's a game. So we stopped by Walmart, we picked up Uno, and we go back to the house, we go into one of the rooms at our house, and we start playing Uno. Now, I haven't played Uno, I think Reagan was president last time I played Uno, but I forgot <laughs> how to play Uno. And it's not that hard, right? You just, it's a color and a number. But we started playing it, we... We thought we were playing it correctly, and then we started. We tried to play it a couple days later with Sarah, and she's like, you guys are stupid because this isn't how you play the game. And I'm like, is this not how you play the game? And she goes, no. So we watched a YouTube video, of course, and learned how to play Uno. So we're playing Uno, and I realized at that moment This is what happens to a lot of people when they go to people's homes and they have a game night. Now, we have several families that we love to do game nights, or we kind of like doing game nights with them. Um, But have you ever ever gone to somebody's house and you're playing a game that you've played many times, maybe Monopoly, Parcheesi, whatever it may be, and you find out about a third of the way through that they have their own rules? They're like house rules. And I'm like, I am in the wrong house because these are stupid rules that you guys are playing by because I played Monopoly all these times. This is how you play it. So this is kind of what it's like. House rules are almost impossible when you're not from that house because you learn them as you go. And they bring them up when it's convenient for them, right? So this is what I think the Pharisees do. They just add rules that are convenient for them. But it's impossible to live by them because you don't know what they all are. 
But one of those oral traditions, one of the things that they had as a regulation, they call it a rabbinic regulation, it actually forbids people from eating with sinners. Can you imagine? None of us would be eating with anybody. But sinners were Jews who did not adhere to the law of Moses and the additional laws. Okay? So not only the 613 laws that Moses brought to the table, but about a thousand more that they've added to them. And not all the Pharisees were bad. Several actually figured it out. But most were stuck in self-righteousness. And what they would do is they would just pass these down onto the up-and-coming Pharisees. So after generations, some of these Pharisees are like, this is what they know. They know a self-righteous life, and they know additional laws that they've added on to them. And they asked this question in Luke chapter 15 with one of those added laws. They said, why does Jesus hang around and accommodate and welcome sinners? Why does he do that? I mean, it even alludes to the fact that he was eating with them, breaking bread, having a meal, which in their custom was absolutely forbidden. And eating with somebody was a huge symbol of acceptance. So if I invite you into my house and we have a meal together, I'm accepting you. So a lot of you guys have done that. I've accepted you. And that's a cool thing. And, but they see it as a negative thing because of one of the rules that they've added on. And so Jesus responds and gives them three stories called parables to drive home his point. And so if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke 15, and we will start there. This is going to be a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. And we're going to start in verse 3. It says, so Jesus told them the story. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go to search for the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. And when, the, when he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. I wonder if they're like, we didn't know you lost a sheep. We would have helped you try to find it. But he's, he's found his lost sheep. You guys need to come celebrate with me. And in the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. Now, Sheep are mentioned a lot in the Bible. They, they really are, because they were very common in, in that time period. Still, in outside the region of Jerusalem, you'll still find it very common. The reason it's really particularly common outside Jerusalem is that the sheep are available to purchase when you are going to go make your sacrifice. And so if I'm going to Jerusalem to the temple to make a sacrifice, I need to get a lamb to make a sacrifice for my sins. We really don't talk about sheep in our culture because none of us are shepherds. 
Um, maybe you have a farm or you're a farmer, and so you understand cattle are important to you. But sheep were very important to them, and Jesus uses sheep because of the importance to the audience in which he is speaking. But sheep are not known for their brilliant intellect, okay? In fact, they're known for quite the opposite, not so bright. They sometimes do stupid things, and at times uh, they would wander off. Sounds a lot like us. And I don't mean that really in a horrible way towards us, but we oftentimes are not so bright. Oftentimes we will do things that don't make sense, and oftentimes we will wander off. So what I want you to understand is this isn't a parable. It's not the point, it's not to point out the dumbness of the sheep, but rather the love and the dedication of the shepherd. It's about the love and the dedication of the shepherd. Look at verse 7 in your Bibles, because in the Pharisees' eyes, they would say it is better to do away with the sinners. If you are a sinner, we would just rather remove you from earth. That was the attitude that they had. It's a horrible attitude to have. But they would say, let's just do away with sinners. Let's not have anything to do. They would cast them out. They would be at the edge of town. Um, There was no place in life for them, and especially no place when it comes to a life with God. But Jesus says quite the opposite in verse 7 when he says, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. Now, I've done a lot of studying on this one parable a lot over the last few years because I'm really trying to understand it. Um, What is this really about? Because we have a lot of people that will choose to leave the church that they attend. And I've been trying to figure out, man, does that mean we have to chase them all down? I believe, and this is from my standpoint, I, I don't believe that that's what he's talking about. I don't think sheep are saying, you know what, today I'm going to go get lost, and they determine they are going to leave. It is they just get lost. They wander off. Because there were so many times in the New Testament where Jesus would have people coming up to him And they would ask him questions, and he would give them the answer, and they would leave sad because they didn't like what they had to hear. And he doesn't chase them down. Like, so for instance, you know, a guy comes up and says, hey, you know what, I want to be a follower of you. And Jesus says, well, hey, you need to do this. You need to sell everything you have. You need to do this, this, and this, and then you can go follow me. And he's like, I can't do that. And he leaves sad. And Jesus doesn't, you know what, hold on, wait a minute you know what, just sell half your stuff and then come follow after me. No. Jesus does not go after them. He lets them go. And I think Jesus does something a lot of times, and I think it's going to really come through in the third uh, parable that we're going to teach on tonight. But this is a, a very hard thing with churches today because there's a lot of churches where just people keep coming and going. And it's not just revived. It seems like it's a pandemic with churches all over. In fact, I had a conversation with a friend of mine who's a uh, doing ministry on the north side of Honolulu in Hawaii. And uh, we were talking this past week, and he said, yeah, it's 
same thing here. It's just a constant revolving door. And it's just brutal. It's hard. When Jesus talks about sheep getting lost, he's talking about people that didn't know that they were lost. They'd wandered off. And so, even the chapter before this, in the venue, the same venue, Jesus specifically talks about the cost of following after him. And he uses language if says this. He says, if you do not carry your cross and come after me, you cannot be my disciple. That's a pacemaker sermon right there. When you use language that talks about picking up your cross and following after me, meaning you need to die to yourself and come and have a life that is in me 100%. That's tough. So when people would leave sad, Jesus doesn't go after them, doesn't run after them, doesn't try to change everything. And so the lesson is we are all sinners. We are all like sheep. And Jesus cares about every single one of us. And when there is one who... Uh, was lost that is found, he says there is this great celebration. There's a lot of rejoicing. Someone has found Christ and has found life. Notice who celebrates, the shepherd and his friends. So if God is the shepherd and he rejoices and his friends rejoice, that means that if you are not rejoicing over one sinner that repents and returns to God, then you are not a friend of God. And the Pharisees are not celebrating. They're not celebrating. The second parable is a lost coin, where it says this, and starting in verse 8, it says, Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Won't she light a lamp and sweep the entire house And search carefully until she finds it. And when she finds it, she will call in her friends and neighbors and say, Rejoice with me because I have found my lost coin. In the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. Now, my daughter Olivia, who let me preface this, I love dearly. And I'm not asking for her to speak at this time. She loves a lot of things that are very little, little toys, little trinkets, little figures, little things that drive the rest of us nuts because when she loses one of these little tiny little things, we all have to search because she will go absolutely crazy. We have to find this little thing. What does it look like? It's just really tiny. It's this big. And I'm like, in my head, I'm like, can I go to the dollar store and buy you 10 of those little things? But no, because they're very important to her, and so the entire house, we search, and we search, and we search until it is found. Now, the monetary value of the coin that the parable is talking about is a full day's wage, and so uh, if you make $100 a day, it'd be like the worth of $100. If you make $500 in a day, that would be like losing $500. Now, In their day, some people would actually place more value in the coin than they would the sheep. The Pharisees would probably be in this ballpark. You lost a sheep? Wait, you lost money? Whoa, 
So it's, it's, it's sometimes that happens. Now, also, in, and it may have been in more than just first century, but I do know it was in first century, a lot of the ladies would wear head, um, headdress. I think I'm saying that correctly. And in the headdress, it would have 10 coins. And so they would have 10 coins in the headdress. And if they lost one of those, these were very valuable to them. It's not just a monetary thing. So ladies, if you lost your wedding ring, there's some monetary value to that, but it, it means way more to you than just the monetary. And so for a lady to lose this coin is a big deal. It has a much bigger value. And the higher the value, the more you are willing to sacrifice to save it. You may need to write that down. The higher the value, the more you are willing to sacrifice to save it. And one thing that really stands out in this parable to me is the intention of the search. She is going to get a light. She's going to sweep the entire house, and she's going to search carefully until she finds it. What woman wouldn't do that? They all would. And so, you know, this is my daughter in a relentless pursuit of a little thing. This is your heavenly father in a relentless pursuit of someone and something that is lost. So again, there's a celebration. There is much joy in heaven when just one sinner repents. And so when we... Um, when we stretch out the time and we look back and we say, okay, man... How did, how did things go in church? And maybe it's a three or four month period and you say, well, we only had one person give their life to Jesus. Understand, there's a lot of joy and celebration over that one. It may not have been 20 or 40 or hundreds. One it was important enough for one. And that is a good deal. The last parable which I'm going to summarize for you, but I would encourage you guys to read, is the parable of the lost son. Maybe you guys are familiar with it, but the son represents someone who chooses to take from the father and then leave. He goes out and he squanders the inheritance um, on booze and debauchery. And so that's what he decides to do. He's going to go party it up. So he asks his dad, Dad, I, I would like my inheritance. And his dad says, okay. And he lets him go. And notice that he does not chase his son down. He lets him go. But I want you to see what the father does in response. But eventually the money runs out rather quickly. A famine hits the land at the same time that the money runs out. Life gets really tough and he ends up working at a farm with the pigs. And he gets so hungry that the slop that he is feeding to the pigs is looking appealing to him. Now, how hungry do you have to get where pig slop looks good to you? It gives you a very, very clear understanding of the hunger that he has. He is so hungry that this looks good. And so he's thinking to himself, he finally starts to come a little bit to his senses, and he's thinking, man, the hired men for my father live better than this. And so he comes up with a plan. In verse 18, he says, you know what? I will go home to my father, 
And I will say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So that's what he does. He heads home. And the Bible says that before he even got close to the house, his dad, he is spotted by his father. And there's a beautiful scene where the father has compassion on him, runs to his son, and embraces him. Now, understand what the father does. He is watching out for his son to return. I imagine he spent several, a lot of his time looking out in the distance. Is that him? Is that him? And finally that day comes when it is him, and he runs up to him, hugs him, embraces him. He puts on the nicest robe on his son. He puts sandals on his feet. Notice sandals on the feet, folks. So Don't give me any grief about sandals on the feet. He places the family ring on his finger, and they cook up the fattened calf, and he throws a huge feast. That's what it says in verse 24. For his son, for the son of, of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now is he is found. And so the party began. Notice in all three parables, there is a celebration. There is a party. There is rejoicing. But you know who is not celebrating? The older brother. The older brother who watched everything go down. He watches his father throw a party for the one who chose to go the direction that he went. And so he doesn't rejoice. Who rejoices? Friends of the Father. And this is a gut check for church people. Because oftentimes, and myself included, get into a Pharisaic mindset where we believe that people who don't earn it don't deserve it. You don't deserve the kingdom that God offers. And notice the father didn't chase after the son again. He allowed him to go, but he was anxiously awaiting and watching out. But beautiful picture of what the church should be like. That's what I believe. Looking out and waiting with open arms that anybody that would walk in our doors would feel loved. And welcomed. And like they belong here. That's what the church should do. That's what the church should do when people come back. And so why does Jesus hang around and accommodate and welcome sinners? Because they are his creation. And he wants them back. Even though they are sinners, they are his creation. If you create something belongs to you. What if, what if the created, what if the thing that you created just never acknowledged you? This is why it's so important for God. He wants the created to acknowledge him and love him. 1 Timothy 1.15 says this, and I'll close. It says, this is a trustworthy saying and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save 
sinners. He came in the world to save sinners, all of us. So understand the mission to help people far from God come to life in Christ. And it happens in some degree inside the walls of this church, but it mostly happens when we leave here and we go out into the world that we live and we encounter people and we look for opportunities to share the truth, the saving grace of Jesus Christ. And folks, let me tell you, it is messy. It is dirty. And it's not always fun. But it is so worth it. And there will be rejoicing if even one comes in to the fold. 1 John 2.2 says, He himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins. And not only our sins, but the sins of all the world. For all the world. And it is the world that we have the honor and the privilege to try to share the saving grace of Jesus Christ with. Let's pray. Father God, we are grateful to be living on mission and to be able to say, you know what, we are your ambassadors. We are going to be little lights for you. And I pray that that's what we do, that every week when we come into this place, we're able to worship you, we're able to learn from you, we're able to think about the ways that you want us to live our lives. But when we will leave this place, and when we will leave even in our homes, maybe watching this online, that we will look for opportunities to live out the mission. It was so important. That one sheep was so important. That one coin was so important. That lost son was so important. And when they are found, I pray that we will celebrate. We will rejoice your kingdom.